Calling all Arizona attorneys. Where are my brothers and sisters at? I hope you are ready to be educated and inspired. Or at least entertained. Because it is time for Cluff's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. I'm your host, Arizona attorney, Brig Clough. Looks like we are now recording. So this is real. This is for the record. <laughs> I'm glad to be on the record with you this morning. I am joined here by Julie Gunnigal. Julie Gunnigal is fresh off of a victory in the Democratic primary for the office of Maricopa County Attorney. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. Well, congratulations. That is awesome. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. You know, that was a, a bitter primary. And one of the things that we learned was how desperately folks in Maricopa County want to take this office into a new direction. And I think that's what we saw last Tuesday when those results came in uh, with almost every single precinct uh, having, you know, a clear majority for a reform minded candidate. So we're looking forward to November. And I think there's some big things that we've learned that place you know, a campaign like mine and an advantage going into November. Very few people have had to campaign during COVID. And we were, in my view, especially clever in how we did voter outreach, how we held conversations, um, how we listened to people. And, you know, it ended up working. Yeah, it did. It did. Scoreboard. I've got a, a pretty good streak going here of uh, knowing, well, it's really not a streak. The streak has been ruined because there's an interim appointee in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, uh, and I don't know her, but I did know her predecessor, who was a law school friend of mine, Bill Montgomery, and I know you now, and I, I really like to know the Maricopa County Attorney. That's just how I prefer things to be. So you have my full support. For a lot of reasons, but that's one of the reasons. Oh, thank you. Is this the first time you've ever run for political office? No, this is not the first time I've ever run for political office. I came to politics in a very different way, I think, than most. So I'm, I'm an attorney, and I was educated out at the University of Notre Dame, prosecuted in Indiana, where I did domestic violence cases and child-on-child -child sexual assault cases. Notre Dame, you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, never Irish. heard of it. Never heard of it. Go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, then from there, I was tapped to join the Cook County Financial Crime and Public Corruption Bureau, where I prosecuted politicians who had stolen public funds. So after Wait I had. A uh, Hold on a second. <laughs> Did you say Cook County? Cook County. Yep. I find, right it, I find it very hard to believe that there are politicians in Cook County that stole public funds. I mean, that's the home of Chicago, isn't it? You've got that right. I mean, didn't Rod Blagojevich hail from that area himself? I mean, wow. Okay. Fact, I, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin any surprises, Can, uh, but I, I just want to sprinkle a little intrigue in here. Go ahead, Julie, continue. Oh, there's a tell, lot tell of intrigue in there. So I mean, yeah. the, the work that had to be done in Cook County was huge. And I prosecuted everyone from, you know, aldermen who were stealing their office furniture um, and to people who had stolen a quarter million dollars in taxpayer funds using shell companies. So it was a 
it was absolutely fascinating work. But the thing that stood out to me when I moved back here, so I was born and raised here in Arizona. And when I came back here to raise my children, I started going down to the Capitol and I started watching politicians doing quite literally the exact same things that would land a Cook County politician in prison. Hmm. So it's openly voting money into their own pockets, these sorts of conflicts of interest that have become, you know, both legal and weaponized here in Arizona, I think are really concerning. And they're at the heart of all of these bigger issues that I see happening in our state. And that's what I want to fix. Well, I fully support that. You mentioned a, a conflict that is just so, so terrible, which is the voting money into your own pocket. And you said that it's uh, legal. I think I think maybe you said legal-ish <laughs> in some cases, right? Yeah, yeah legal adjacent. Yes, <laughs> legal adjacent. All right, um, and weaponized. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. That that scares me to death to hear you say that. But expound on that if you would a bit. Sure. So in Arizona, we have what's known as the rule of ten which means that if you are someone who is serving in the capacity of a public official and you're voting on legislation, if that legislation affects 10 or more other folks, you can vote on that piece, you know, that, that piece of legislation. So the way that's played out in Arizona has been, you know, we've had folks who have been even the president of our Senate who have voted on legislation to create, for example, student tuition assistance orgs that benefit them to the tune of about, well, about 10% of all the public funds that flow through there. And it's been millions, if not billions over the years. Um, and they're able to vote on that legislation while running those sorts of businesses. And it plays out not just in our public schools, it also plays out in our prison system because these same folks are taking campaign contributions from our private prison industry and then voting on legislation that drives up the average length of sentences. And in my view, that's a conflict. And that's one of the reasons that we are the fifth largest incarcerator in our country. We're actually the eighth largest incarcerator in our world, which should be shocking. In our world, Arizona is the eighth largest incarcerator. That is a waste of public resources. Hold on just a second here. The eighth largest incarcerator in the world is Arizona. Yes, okay. sir. How are we measuring that? Does does China count as one incarcerator? That just blows my mind. Oh yeah, I mean we're we're definitely lower than the entire nation of China, but uh, when it comes to per capita incarceration, it is. A I think we're point. doing fine then, as long as uh, <laughs> as long as we've got fewer people incarcerated than the nation of China. I think we're fine. Uh, but go ahead, just just. Just in case you're on to something here, why don't you proceed? Well, let me let me just blow your mind for a second. So what would what would Arizona look like if we were to be smarter about who we sent to our jails and prisons? And the reforms that I've been advocating for take us back down to the median in the nation. So right now, Utah sits at a median incarcerator. They have lower crime than we do. They spend less on their prisons and they're able to spend more on their infrastructure, their public health, their education systems, and all of those other systems that make families safer and you know keep families together. And if there's one thing that we can fix in this system, I think we should be smarter with our resources. And it's not smart to send so many people into jails and prisons, especially for what we're sending them for, which is largely nonviolent, low-level drug offenses. Okay. Um, 
I have never practiced in the uh, uh, area of criminal law, or or at least uh, my practice in that area has been extremely limited, uh, basically limited to answering emergency calls from friends uh, who have got a potential DUI situation. So they uh, they call me because they remember my number. I think they also know, wait, this guy doesn't drink. Uh, I don't know if he's going to really be able to help me that much, but um, at least they know that I'm not drunk when they call. Um, but I, I also don't know very much about criminal law. However, I did see the movie Holes. Okay. Have you seen the movie Holes? I love that movie. And the book is even better. I've heard that. Yeah. I, it, I, I should read that book. Uh, but I I love the movie, and a lot of what I know about private prisons comes from that movie. Um, uh, Shia LaBeouf goes to uh, uh, Camp Green Lake, right? Not mm-hmm. <laughs> anyways. Uh, not that it probes super deep into the uh, uh, the problems posed by private prisons, but it does give you one little fictional data point as to the sort of conflicts that arise. And I, uh, it is just so, so problematic to me. Um, I, I have, I will admit to having a little bit of a libertarian streak in my uh, way of thinking. And I, I'm skeptical of the government's ability to do things well or efficiently. But there are certain things that have always been government functions, that when you try to privatize them, you, you just open up a universe of problems that you can't even you can't even imagine what all the problems are. But when you privatize a prison, you literally will have uh, a group of business people, boardrooms, who are discussing how can we incarcerate more people in this jurisdiction you know something you mentioned uh probation terms yeah these people have a vested interest now in seeing people uh not be let out on probation their employees who are operating as prison guards are incentivized to not let these people out you, we can't even imagine what all the problems are, but I, I, I just think it is a terrible, terrible idea. Well, I think you're right, and I think what we're seeing right now is that host of the unintended consequences of private, prison privatization, and what's really interesting to me is what it even looks like inside our public prisons, right? Because we have privatized the systems inside those as well. So, for example, um, folks who are incarcerated and are making, you know, to the tune of 20, 30 cents an hour um, have to pay private commissary for things as basic as a bar of soap during a pandemic. Um, And that cost right now is about four dollars, which should be shocking to all of us that, you know, two full days work to be able to buy a a bar of soap. Um, We know that the public prisons have privatized health care inside of them. We know that they have private telecom services and private um, uh, electronic communication services that are happening. So even in our public prisons, we see the same sorts of conflict of interest and the, the privatization and profitization. Uh, is that even a word? Profiteering. There we go. We see profiteering um, off of uh, off of 
incarcerated people. And I think that's wrong. Okay. Uh, profiteering, that checks out as a word. Uh, but I think <laughs> profitization also, I think that's a word. I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and sign on that. Profitization. And, and actually, it's a useful word because um, profiteering has a, um, definitely has a negative connotation to it. Profitization isn't necessarily negative, but when you have it in the context of a private prison, then it, it probably does introduce some really bad unintended consequences. Um, and so I have been involved – now we're getting into an area that I know a little bit more about uh, because I have sued prisons before for some of the types of things that you're talking about. Um, and I, uh, I have seen the uh, rationing of healthcare uh, done in a way that, uh, well, I, I have one client, former client, that uh, can't walk normally anymore. Uh, and for the rest of his life, he will he will not be able to walk um, in a normal manner because he he was injured while he was doing one of those jobs, making twenty cents an hour that you were talking about. Which, by the way, the inmates they look forward to those jobs. They the the money that they earn, even though it's you know, a very, very small amount. And I don't know if it's 20 cents or, or what the number is, but it's, it's shockingly small. It's far less than minimum wage. Um, even though it is so small, it is meaningful money to them. They, they do care about earning that money. Um, in addition to that, they also care about just getting out um, and doing something different than being incarcerated in their cell or in their cell block or the yard that they can sometimes go to. Um, so they want to do those jobs. And I had a client that was um, doing some work on a scaffold that was set up improperly. He fell down, broke his heel and um, said, Hey, my, my foot hurts. Days go by, weeks go by, months go by. My foot really really hurts. And eventually his crushed heel consolidated into a, a mass of uh, this new malformed bony structure that prevents him from ever walking normally for the rest of his life. He was in on a DUI. He was, I, I would guess that he was probably, probably about 50 years old. Anyways, um, I, I see those sorts of privatization problems uh, being problematic in prison. Uh, however, some of that is just really hard to avoid. That's why we have lawsuits that can be brought to get justice uh, when those problems are encountered. But privatizing entire prison systems is just such a terrible idea. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I'm grateful that there are individuals like you out there seeking justice for folks, because I think the really important point is that we as people, as human beings, we all want some of the same things. We all want, you know, meaning, we all want purpose, and we all want dignity in our work. And part of that dignity has to be, you know, fair treatment. And it has to be, you know, when you're injured, having access to, you know, quality health care, especially when you're incarcerated and can't seek um, health care anywhere else. Yeah, that's right. You truly are at the mercy 
of the whoever is uh, rationing out the health care, and uh, that can have some some really terrible consequences. Most of my familiarity with prison, thankfully, it does not come about as being a inmate, but I, I did spend several years, probably about five years, working in my church's prison ministry program. And so I would go out there to um, Iman State Prison Complex a couple of times a month usually and do church services with inmates. And uh, I got to know a lot of those guys really well. And they were, well, a lot of those guys were in for things that, you know, we're not talking about minor drug offenses that uh, where I think it was an outrage that they were in there. I mean, they prison is probably exactly the right place for them. But it ought to be designed to facilitate as much as possible rehabilitation. We have so many people passing through our prison systems. Do we want them being destroyed? Eventually, hopefully, they're going to emerge. We want them to be productive members of society. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's such an important point um, that everybody who's listening needs to remember 97% of all people who are in our prison system right now will one day come out. And the more that we can do to provide folks with, you know, uh, the substance use treatment that they, that they need for the mental health that they need um, for vocational and other rehabilitative services like that truly is the key. And, you know, I, I am also someone who spent a lot of time, um, working with, it was, it was the youth. I spent nearly every weekend for a year inside our juvenile detention centers. And that totally changed my perspective on criminal justice writ large. And I think all prosecutors, and when I take the helm of the county attorney's office, um, should be required to visit a detention center and visit a prison and really have their eyes opened to what the day-to-day looks like for someone who's incarcerated. But with youth in particular, I was I was blown away. Some of the greatest minds that I have ever met, I met in a juvenile detention facility. And, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those instances where if we can be smarter with, you know, who we send there, why, what services are offered, um, and making sure that people aren't necessarily involved uh, with the criminal justice system, um, making, making sure that it's the, the, the right people who are who are focused there is is really important because there's so much just waste in our system. And in particular, jail and prison is a really traumatic place to be. And we know that trauma is one of the key indicators for whether or not someone's going to recidivate. And when we rethink our prison system, we need to be thinking about those sorts of things. Amen. Okay. I don't think... I ever got uh, got around to pinning you down on answering my question, though. What what is your first run for political office? Oh my gosh! I so I was one of those people that was motivated by the uh, the Red for Ed movement, and I ran for the state house in 2018 up in Legislative District 15, which is our North Phoenix area, Scottsdale Road to 67th Avenue more or less Union Hills north up to the Carefree Highway. We knocked 40,000 doors. We had the third highest voter contact rate in all of Maricopa County. And we turned what was a 20 point um, you know, uh, benefit for the incumbent down to a three point 
benefit and yeah. closing. So I'm hoping that this cycle or next, we're able to get you know some real anti-public corruption, pro-public education candidates up in the North Valley. Oh, wow. Well, good for you. That's really good. Uh, Julie, what do you do right now um, in terms of practicing law? Are you are you currently practicing or are you in full-time campaign mode right now? Yes. Um, I have tailored down my law practice. So before running, I was a solo practitioner. Um, I specialize in general civil litigation. I handle a lot of um, disabled students, IEP and 504 plans. And then I have a small subset dedicated to uh, to birthing people where I handle, if it deals with moms, babies, justice, that's what we do on a pro bono basis. So I've tailored down my practice substantially. I still have a few other cases that are just kind of stuck in the process, but running is my more or less full-time job right now. Well, I'm sure that that is uh, more than enough to fill up your day. <laughs> and and you've got a family too. You mentioned that you've got kids. Three that uh, I know of. Three that you know husband. of. Okay. <laughs> yes. And so we are in the process of crisis schooling my three children and dealing with a pandemic and a campaign that is never, you know, this is a new world for all of us and, you know, a still part-time law practice. Yeah. So did you, um, are, are your kids all doing online right now? Yeah, or or so, those that are school aged anyways. So it's a mix. Um, my, my son is an interesting story because I'm, well, I'm the proud mom of an autism kid. Uh, but he was a child who couldn't get services in our public schools. Um, it's okay. one of the reasons I became involved in advocacy. Um, I bet. That's why that's probably how you learned about IEP, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. I, I have too many IEP stories to, to share, but it's like, it's such a passion that the kids get what they need in their in mm -hmm. schools. And I, despite my best efforts, we weren't able to do it. My child also has some profound gifts too. So I'm proud to say that he's 12 he is taking an almost full load at Paradise Valley Community College um, mm. this semester, and he's he's doing amazing work. So he's all entirely online. Um, my middle child, they are um, at doing a full-time online program that has actually committed to online for the year. And then my youngest, I have a first grader, and uh, she's doing a gap year. Taking a gap year. Going to go uh, <laughs> hike, uh, hike the mountains of Europe. I, I wish it was something more exciting, but you know, we're working with her. She's getting her multiplication done reading every night. I think this is going to be really good for her. It's just so hard for kiddos right now trying to navigate yeah. that they can't be with their friends. Yeah. Do you have kids in the public in schools right now? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I've got five kids and my two oldest are now in college. And they're, um, they're at BYU, Idaho, and um, they've been with us for the last several months. Everybody's been uh, quarantined, or I guess that's technically not the right word, but we've been um, uh, created our own bubble, and uh, it's been awesome, actually. The bubble has been very good to my family. Um both of my oldest daughters just got married, and so these new sons-in-law have been living with us, and we have 
we've got space for them. And so it's not like everybody's on top of one another, but it has been the funnest time. And I've gotten to know these guys in a way that I, I just never would have had it not been for that. So I've been very happy. Um, even though I know the, the pandemic has, uh, brought a lot of pain to a lot of people. It's, it's actually been very good to me. And then my next three are, uh, I have a senior this year. I have a freshman and I have a seventh grader and they're all online. Well, that sounds really good. I mean, I can only imagine what it must be like to do, to do high school, especially, which is all about, you know, developing a social circle and being with your friends to have to do that in a totally virtual world. Um, I think these kids are going to come out a lot stronger than, for example, my generation is like having to, having to cope with all of this and a lot smarter too. Oh my goodness. The, the meetings that we used to have to have in person. Wow. They're going to be really prepared <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to brave this, uh, well, brave new technological world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Those are great points. Okay. So, uh, this podcast, it's not exclusively for lawyers. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of people that listen that are non-lawyers, but it's lawyer heavy and we talk about lawyer lifestyle. So without getting super technical, I would just like to know from you, what do you love about being a lawyer and what do you hate or not love about being a lawyer? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. Um, so there is not a day that goes by that I don't wake up and just feel really validated in my career choice because I think the heart of lawyering is being able to solve problems. So in my world, you know, being able to, to take phone calls and help folks navigate uh, difficult situations within the bounds of the law and you know, sometimes, not always, because we as lawyers know that the answer more or less in some instances is maybe or perhaps, but there are those rare instances where there are actual answers that you can point to and help somebody navigate. And gosh, in those instances, it feels so good to be an attorney. You know, the one thing that is not so hot that continues um, to be, you know, front of mind for me is that this is still a stressful position. People trust you, you know, with their their lives, their families, their businesses. And I would love to see more intentional outreach to lawyers to have a better quality of life, to keep them away from some of those, um, well, from substance use disorders and some of those other outcroppings of the just severe, often crippling stress that can happen in our in our profession. And I think that's actually one of the things that I'd like to talk more with the county attorneys, uh, because as you know, this is one of the largest law offices in town. There's 425-ish attorneys who work for the county attorney's office. And I want to make sure that as they're proceeding you know, as lawyers, that they have access to some sort of stress relief in a very stressful time and a really stressful position. Okay. Um, how long... And if the answer, if the answer is, I'll let you know, uh, that's okay too. But how long did it take you before you felt like you were a, a really, you know, contributing member of the bar? Like you knew what you were doing as a lawyer. 
Wow, that's a really good question. You know, I think the answer is I'll let you know. <laughs> but same. No, no, it's not, it's not know, really. I, but isn't it strange though? I mean, one of the things that I've really taken to heart about being an attorney is that that law degree and that those bar licenses don't mean that you have a working knowledge of every single law that's out there, right? So I know that when I was a prosecutor, you know, it got me, took me a few years. So I really got my sea legs and really felt very comfortable operating in, in that realm. But it seems, you know, as a civil and a solo practitioner, man, the diversity of client issues that are brought to me, everything from, you know, professional licensing to, I don't know, a couple years ago, I handled, uh, I got a question about an admiralty case. Oh, wow, boy. there's a lot out there and you know, there's a lot that you can't possibly know that you have, the answer has to be, I'll look it up or I know how to research and find an answer. Yeah. So it's hard for me to pinpoint an exact moment where I turned the corner. Um, but I remember for so many years, I would, I, I would get a new case or I would, uh, be involved in some issue on a case. And, and I would think, Oh, wow, this is new. But I would think, Hey, you know what? This is actually really good because this is going to give me a chance to finally learn this stuff. And I might actually, you know, be able to like be a real lawyer after I learn this, this is just the one thing that's been holding me back. And I remember thinking that just constantly for so many years. And I remember explaining to my wife all the time, like, yeah, I've got this thing I'm doing and I need to, but I think it's going to be really good because I'm going to learn a lot from this. And I would, that's when I would notice myself that, that I was like always saying, because I was always saying the same thing to my wife. I'm, I'm finally going to learn how to do. And then it really hasn't been all that long, few years. I don't know how many, but I was like, you know what? I haven't had that conversation in a little while. I think I'm an actual lawyer now. I can really do some stuff. So, man, our profession takes a long time, in my opinion, to to be able to do uh, to do well. To to even be able to do competently, you gotta you gotta have some reps. It's so true, and I think you have to be intellectually curious as well. Like I know the most exciting clients that I've ever had have been people who have been operating in a space that's totally different than any of my other experience. So for example, a while back, I took cases involving midwives and I, I was transfixed. Like I learned so much about, you know, what they did on a daily basis and what their licensing scheme looks like and what their history was. It was absolutely fascinating. And you know, the, the diversity of cases that you get to take as a civil practitioner, everything from being at one point in time, I learned a heck of a lot about lawnmower blades to, yeah, you know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that must have been a personal injury case, right? Uh, no, it was a patent case. It was fascinating. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it did, deciding, uh, deciding which claims to file and which from the prior art were, were invalid. It was, oh my goodness, it was, it was so interesting. But I love things like oh, that. Man. Like, bring me a strange problem and let me learn something. You, you drop a term like prior art out there, and I, I actually get a chill. <laughs> Seriously, I'm, that's an area where I know, okay, that I do not understand this area, 
and, and I hear a phrase like that dropped and I, I run. That's not my area. <laughs> but you did it. I salute you. You, you. you got in there and did it. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, I've had a very, uh, when it comes to the civil practice, like the, I've had a really interesting career because I've been licensed. I'm licensed actually um, in Illinois, Indiana. Those are both inactive, Arizona. And then I'm actually a patent and trademark attorney as well through the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So, because my background is chemistry. So I've been oh, able to okay. take a lot of interesting cases as a result of that background. But I don't know. It I think it helps inform a better worldview too. Because when you come from a place of, of science and are accepting of when you have better evidence, adoption of that better evidence, you know, that's the exact person that, for example, I want to elect. I want to know that if we have somebody in office who, when we know better, will do better and is open to, you know, differing opinions and being able to operate from a place of best evidence. Here, here. All right. So, uh, Julie, you are running for the office of Maricopa County Attorney. Uh, you're now in the general election. Congratulations. I am polling for you. You will have my vote. But I have to say, the idea of electing offices like county attorney, and especially as you get even more, I don't know what the term is, but specialized, the state mine inspector, uh, recorders, assessors, etc. I don't think that's the best way to choose leaders to run these organizations. Why do we elect these people? Why, why aren't those appointed by, uh, by governors? You know, I think this is a really thoughtful question. And in some areas, they are. So in, in some jurisdictions, uh, there are appointments. It's, it's a handful, and it's certainly not the majority. One of the things that I'd like to get away from and what I've heard other people who are running for these, you know, uh, you know, highly, in some cases, technocratic offices um, is that they would prefer that this would be a nonpartisan position. Right. Because when we look at prosecution, for example, right, there's not a Democratic versus a Republican way of prosecuting a homicide that doesn't exist. Um, where I think the differences do draw in are, you know, different public policy areas and, you know, my commitment to bringing down the, the rate of incarceration, being able to provide treatment. That part, I think, very much, uh, very much is something that should be in front of the voters so that they can make decisions based on two different policy platforms. But I share your concern and actually loathe the fact that there's a any sort of, you know, partisanship in this office because this should be about justice. Every single time. Good answer. Here's, here's something I would like to know. So you've, you've practiced law in several different jurisdictions. Do you notice any difference in the way these, these jurisdictions or these bar associations interact with women attorneys? <laughs> Yes. Let me tell you a story. So I'm, I'm a member of an inn of court. And one of the things that my inn did about a year ago was they had a panel. It was all, um, it was a justice, a retired justice and um, several other judges um, that were practicing all over the state. Um, and it was all about sexual harassment in the workplace. 
and what it would take to have attorneys actually come forward when they are harassed by judges. Because as you probably know, there's been but a handful of cases over the last several years, leading people to believe that maybe that sort of disparate treatment doesn't happen between men and women in the courtroom. So, you know, we went through this hour and a half CLE over dinner. And when everybody left, I was surrounded by a group of women attorneys who'd been in practice, you know, between one and five years. There wasn't a single one of us that did not have a story about being harassed um, in the courtroom by either a member of staff or a judge or a fellow attorney. And it happened on the record. It is still a very real problem, the way women attorneys are treated. And it's a solution. It's, we don't have good solutions for it, truthfully, because there is not the degree of um, separation between making the complaint and having it actually be addressed that would really, you know, assuage someone's concerns that they won't face retaliation for it. And it's one of the big issues that I see in the county attorney's office as well. I mean, Juan Martinez operated as a known sexual harasser in that office, not just for a few months, but for decades and wasn't dealt with. And even, even when the new political appointee came in, you know, she still waited upwards of six months before he was dismissed. And it's one of those things where I think there's a culture that needs to change around how we treat women in the workplace. And then writ large, I mean, I think we need to talk about diversity issues in that office because that office does not adequately reflect the diversity of the county that it's supposed to represent. Wow. Let me ask you this. I find myself occasionally um, interacting with women attorneys, uh, either opposing counsel or co-counsel sometimes, but not so much co-counsel because um, because there's not an adversarial relationship there and they, they know me. But uh, with opposing counsel or with women who are judges who don't know me, I have this concern that they've had all these bad experiences and I certainly look like uh, the type of person who has caused many of their bad experiences. What is a way for people like myself to introduce ourselves to to show that we are we're an ally we're sympathetic i mean we're adversaries in a case perhaps or or we're uh if not adversary you know in the case of a, a woman that's a judge the judge isn't the adversary hopefully um but um still we're we're, we're certainly not um you know unified completely in what our objectives are how does somebody like me interact with women attorneys in a way that shows that I'm an ally and I, I'm not articulating it very well, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Oh, no, I think you are. Um, if I understand the question, it's, you know, how, how to communicate to make sure that you're not, you know, repeating the, the patterns that we've seen, you know, from so many other attorneys for generations in this practice. And I think you're doing it right now. I mean, obviously I don't speak for all women, but I can tell you the two most common things that happen with female attorneys is folks who, who interrupt 
um, and not being able to he hear them out. And I've seen this repeated so many times where, you know, I'm in a room and the male attorneys interrupt the female attorneys and they can barely get a sentence out. And this, the same is true. I, I love the way you speak because you speak to somebody, <laughs> not down to them, at them. And, you know, I, I think, I think you're doing it right now. You know, everybody just wants the same thing they want professional respect. And when you talk up to them and don't interrupt, like that is just the absolute key to communication. And I so appreciate getting that from you. When I go back and listen to this recording, I really hope that I don't find that I've interrupted you. <laughs> no, if anything, I've talked over you. <laughs> Julie, it has been a pleasure. Julie Gunnigal, the Democratic nominee for Maricopa County Attorney. She's awesome. Vote for her. Tell your friends. Thanks, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, if I may say, you can find more information about me and my website at gunnigal2020.com on Facebook at Gunnigal2020 and on Twitter at Julie Gunnigal. Thank you so much for having me. That is it for this episode of Clough's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. Thank you to my guests and listeners. Be sure to share this show with all your lawyer friends. And if you have an idea for the show, give me a call or send me an email at brig at cluffinjurylawyers.com. I'll see you soon.